Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forevers on the Wing Podcast, coming at you through a brand new app called Squadcast. Yeah, you know, we've we've been doing the podcast for over a year and a half now, and I said uh, we made a commitment to the highest sound quality and doing these in person, and then COVID hit, <laughs> and, and we we've had to adapt like the rest of the world. So we're gonna give this a, a whirl with uh, uh, with an online app and hope the uh, sound quality keeps up to what our listeners expect at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And and to uh, help us start off this brand new endeavor with a new recording system is the most frequent contributor to On The Wing podcast. He, he's the only person with a punch card at this point. Uh, Mr. Tom Dockin, my favorite dog trainer in the land. Tom, thank you very much for uh, uh, making some time to, to join us via the internet to talk about bird dogs today. Well, good to, good to be on and you know, the show must go on. So it's a good, uh, it's a good thing that we can do this and just kind of keep people in the loop. It is, it is. And I, I trust you looking healthy, you're sounding mm-hmm. healthy. Things are going well for uh, for you and Tina right now. All good, all good. Social distancing, you know. She keeps me at about ten feet apart from her. So, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, so I want to mention a couple of things going on right now. Um, this is the month of April, so it is Bird Dogs for Habitat Month. Have pheasants forever and quail forever. As uh, listeners across the land know, the conservation community, um, uh, this uh, the COVID virus has hit conservation particularly hard. Um, it's at the uh, it came at the heart of our spring banquet and fundraising season. Pheasants forever and quail forever, in particular, um, has has had to reschedule almost two hundred banquets this spring, which is. Uh, affecting 200, or I'm sorry, 20,000 uh, members. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, you know, the people's health and, uh, you know, business and keeping jobs is the of the utmost importance, uh, particularly the health. Um, but, uh, you know, Mother Nature's not stopping. Um, you know, it's it's nesting season around the country, and in our habitat mission must go on. So we do have our annual Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign off and running. Uh, you can check that out at birddogsforhabitat.org. And uh, as part of that, Sport Dog brand is the official e-collar of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Sport Dog brand is a presenting partner of Bird Dogs for Habitat, and they're sponsoring this particular podcast. And they um, they have a tight affinity with uh, with Mr. Tom Dockin. Tom, you're a ambassador not only to to Sport Dog Brand, but also Perina Pro Plan, two of our um, longest termed best partners that we have out there. So, so you're a uh, you're a perfect fit for us, given everything that we've got going on today. Yeah, so two great you. companies, and and uh, they're such strong supporters of, uh, of pheasants forever and quail forever. And so I'm, you know, I'm honored to be part of that as well. Yeah, they, you know, particularly you, you, you know, in times like this, uh, you look to Sport Dog Brand and Perina, um, and and are 
extremely thankful or I'm extremely thankful for their support, long running support of our habitat mission. Uh, today's episode comes from life member, an idea from life member Pat Craig, uh, Minnesota life member, longtime supporter of Pheasants Forever. And because of COVID-19, Pat's made uh, a, dig- a, a decision in his personal life. He's, he's always um, had a bird dog. His older dog um, or his veteran dog is, is really in its prime right now. It's six years old. And because he and his wife, uh, like so many Americans right now, are working remotely from their homes, uh, they've decided to accelerate the addition of a second bird dog to their home. And this is the first time he's ever gone through the um, the process of adding a second dog. And I, I think that that's not in um, a foreign idea right now. I know that I've talked to a fair number of people that are in the search or getting a puppy this spring when they are spending so much home time, there's opportunity to do the, that potty training, that all important potty training at home. Um, so I thought it was a perfect, uh, perfectly timed episode and no better person to talk about adding multiple dogs to, to the household and to the hunting team than Tom Dockin. Tom, when you start to think about adding that second dog. Well, let me ask you first, your personal, um, when did you get your second bird dog? We've talked about your first bird dog, but when did it become um, kind of a, a pursuit in terms of bird hunting and a lifestyle when that's, when did you make a decision to add a second dog to your family? Well, the, for us, the our best situation is, is going to be, and, and I think that this kind of follow suit for most people is if you can have a second dog that's the first thing that people have yeah. to think about can can we handle two dogs can we have two of them we normally tina and i normally start with our own personal dogs and there are family dogs and hunting dogs we start them right around in between seven and eight years of age is when we start the second one and the reason and kind of the theory behind that is you know at seven and eight you know, you've got a pretty, you know, pretty solid dog on your hands to begin with. The training is pretty well done or should be, you know, the, the hunting experience is, is well intact. And those are kind of, you know, right in that prime time of that dog's experience level. And basically at that stage, all you're really doing is doing some maintenance training. So you're not really having to pour a tremendous amount of time into that dog in order to keep them up. So, we always feel that it's a good time to start the next one. And the reason, you know, reason for that is you're going to have another, on the average, two to three years potentially hmm. with the old dog. And then that lets that young dog kind of come up gradually experience wise. So you know how it's hard to rely on a five, six month old puppy, you know, once right. you had an older dog, it, you know, you get out there and go like, well, my older dog was never like this. Well, yeah, they were. <laughs> At one time they were. So what happens is, is it's kind of like you got the farm team, you know, coming up, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, as the older dog, you know, gets to the point where they're going to be in retirement age. And so you never really have a drop off. So by the time the older dog is pretty much, you know, done with his career and, and uh, you know, isn't able to go like they used to, you've got a, you know, two to three year old dog. I mean, they're, they're rare to go. So 
that's we feel that that's probably the best scenario. Uh, the hardest it, thing I've seen go. Uh, the hardest thing I see is that when people get two young dogs at the same time, mm-hmm. the big, biggest problem there is they both hit you know retirement age at the same time, and then then you're kind of like we have two retirement dogs. Now are you going to add a third dog? Eh, that's that's a little tougher for most people, you know. To yeah. Do. Uh, when did you get your second dog, and what was it, your thought process? Well, m- my situation was a little bit different when I first started off. Uh, I I was in you know running field trials at that time, and I had a mm. uh, I had a dog that was you know very very competitive on a national level, and you know this story has been told in the past, but. Uh, it was, uh, it was a situation where, geez, I was in my, uh, you know, early, early twenties. I think I was 20, 21 years old. And, uh, you know, that, that dog was, was really way above what a dog should have been at that time. I would say in spite of me, cause I, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have the expertise I have now, but the dog was just, you know, really, really on the top level. And so, uh, I had offers on that particular dog, uh, you know, and at that age, you know, the dollar signs were, were extremely high at that time for a 20 year old. But my, my thought right there was if I sell this dog, I'm not going to blow it on a car. I'm not going to blow it on something stupid, uh, that, you know, I'm not going to be able to, uh, you know, show anything for down the line. That money was stuck away. And that was used to put me in business. So that was a little mm-hmm. different. And that dog was probably, you know, two, two and a half years old at that time. And that was a hard decision because, you know, here, you know, here you, you put, you know, the time and effort and, uh, you know, you have a dog that's really excelling. But it was kind of a future commitment on my part. From there on out, then the, then the you know, the situation was always in that seven to eight years of age, uh, just knowing that. Uh, you know, you're going to have to have a backup at some point in time. So that, you know, that was my story. But I think that that follows pretty true with what most people do. One of the yeah. things, the biggest problem I see is that most people wait till that older dog isn't huntable anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and it might be because they can't have a second dog. But, you know, when you get 10, 11, 12 years old, and then you know, you're waiting for that dog, unfortunately, to be gone. You are starting brand new over with a puppy. And you have to accept the fact that you're not going to have a finished dog that first hunting season. But, you know, there's a, a great amount of people that that's, that's the route they have to take. Mm-hmm. Does uh, the breed matter? You, you talk about that seven to eight year window. Does the breed matter in that age process for the decision, or is it not really that big of a deal? If you get that seven to eight year window, it's really going to apply to most breeds. As far as starting a young, a new dog, or as far yeah, as, bringing in a second dog, right? You know, think about you know most of these dogs by the time that they get to be two and three, you know, they're not they're not in the prime of their mm-hmm. their hunting career, but geez, two years of training on a dog. You know, if you're if you're working on it, you've got a dog that's pretty solid at that yeah. you know point in time. So a two year old dog, we expect to be able to put in a really good day's you know work in the field. So um, I would say that's it. You know, when you rely on a a year old dog, you just don't have enough you know actual hunting experience. Normally speaking, 
mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, yeah, if a guy hunts, you know, 90 days out of the year, well, yeah, that's that's a whole different thing. But I, I would say on the average, it takes a good couple years for a dog to get enough experience, but then have enough training on it. So you're maybe more into graduating into a maintenance training versus like having to teach the dog everything. What uh, what are the ages where you consider a dog's um, prime years in terms of the athletic ability, you know, endurance and the intellectual capabilities of knowing what they're supposed to be doing? Is that, you know, between the ages of three and six are their prime? Is that, in, you know, is that the right uh, bullseye? I would say, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I, I would say really between four and about eight. Now, eight would be mm-hmm. like if you've got a dog that's in really good physical condition. Because what you have, you have the the actual bird experience. And you've seen this, I'm sure, in your own dogs. It's, it, it's they're figuring things out out there as they mm-hmm. get older. Where a young dog, they're learning how to figure things out. Where that dog, when they get in that, really in that five and six year age, boy, I tell you what, if you've hunted them enough, you're in the rocking chair. You just stay mm-hmm. behind them, and, and they're going to put you where you need to be. And, and I, I don't know if most people really realize it or just know sometimes what they're seeing when they watch a dog work and watch him work a piece of cover. I always, when I do a seminar, I say, next time you go out, you know, if you have a dog that has some experience, go down a fence line and walk on the wrong side of the fence line. So like say the wind is going across that fence line, purposely Mm -hmm. you go and walk on the wrong side, the upwind side, watch to see what your dog does. Hmm. And then people can appreciate a dog that has some experience because that dog is not going to walk on the wrong side of that fence line. They're going to go downwind. And the more you start seeing that and watching those experienced dogs, how they hunt a piece of cover, man i mean that that that's just experience they just have to be out there Mm. so you talked a little bit about making sure that you have the right situation at a second dog is it are you purely talking about space when you're when you're talking about that um you know being ready to go to a dog number two i think it's time i mean Mm. gee you know you've been to our house i mean we don't live in a mansion but (laughs) and uh you know, our, ours is a, uh, not a great big uh, older farmhouse, but, right. uh, you know, we've we've had as, as many as four in there. And that's kind of how our situation is. Right now, we're at two. And mm-hmm. so uh, Tina's dog is, we are now going to be starting to bring in the next one. So we'll be at three. Uh, my dog, Chase, uh, he just turned six. So in a couple of years, then we're going to be at, you know, we could potentially be at four. And then mm-hmm. the rotation just keeps going. So... I think it's time, you know, versus mm-hmm. space more than anything else. Do you have the time that you can commit to a new dog? Uh, and once again, you know, you mentioned it, you know, now people are at home, housebreaking, you know, you mm-hmm. know what that takes, that takes time to do it. Uh, you know, so, it, and most of these dogs do live inside right now. So, yeah, you got to be able to commit to that time, not just housebreaking, but then what about the training that you're going to do? Do you have time on a daily basis? That's why that's why also having uh, a one young dog and not a, you know, two young ones. Most of the time people if they say, "Well, I'm going to get two puppies." Mm-hmm. 
I, I just I will say you're you're headed for a disaster. <laughs> yeah, you, you just are. And, and the fact is, is that the amount of time that you need to commit to each mm-hmm. one, you can't train them as a pack. You have to train them individually first. You, you probably are not going to have that amount of time. Plus, uh, it's not twice as easy with two dogs. I mean, not, mm. not with a puppy. And, you know, if people have had puppies, they go, <laughs> yeah, you know, one puppy, one puppy is definitely enough. So I always try to encourage them two ways, saying you're not going to give probably each puppy the devotion that you need. So you're not going to end up with probably either one of them is going to be what you're after. And then plus, just like I said before, you're going to have two of them get old at the same time. Mm. So that's something to think so about. too. Going down the road of... I, I want to get two puppies so they always have playmates and they're going to tire each other out is a faulty way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's going to be like living a life in a blender, you know, for everybody. <laughs> it, it just is. It just is. Yeah. And it's not fair to those puppies either because you're constantly going to be trying to, you know, separate them or or they're going to be probably in trouble more often than they really need to be. Plus, another thing is, is what's going to happen is normally speaking, that puppy's going to bond to that other puppy. I mean, hmm. you're, you know, cause you're going to have them with each other, you know, probably more than you should early on. And you really want these puppies to bond to the human being, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're a pack animal. So uh, that bond to that human is important because they're looking for leadership because that's what they, you know, they're a pack animal. So they're looking for leadership they're going to find it within each other. Hmm. And if you did have two puppies, you know, there's going to be some somebody out there going, well, I, I'm having two puppies. You need to early on, you need to keep them separate for a while and give them individual attention versus just letting them, you know, just bond up with each other. Uh, hmm. And that's another thing. If somebody has a litter of puppies and they keep one, you know, that puppy can bond really strongly to the female that just produced that puppy too. Right. So you have to really make sure you got to really make sure that, you know, you kind of separate that for a while too. Not that you're not going to bring them back together, you know, it, you know, at a period of time, but you want that one-on-one bond, you know, you want that humanization more than anything else. So, all right. So you've made a decision to get one puppy mm-hmm. uh, and you go to pick out the puppy in a litter do you bring your veteran dog with you and does the veteran dog play any sort of role in your decision to pick out the puppy from the litter or do you do that completely independently? Well, that's, that, that's something where most of the time, at least my experience has been, depending on how old that veteran dog is, is that as soon as you bring the puppy home, the veteran dog goes, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know, why did you do this? What is this? Because those puppies, those puppies are going to be a nuisance to begin with, with a veteran dog. They're going to be all over them. They're going to be, you know, biting on them and doing those things. I, I, I've had adult dogs that you bring a puppy into the house and they know that the puppy can't climb the stairs yet. Mm-hmm. I've seen them just go, I'm out of here, climb all the way to the top of the, to go upstairs and just sit there at the upstairs going like, I, I don't want to deal with this now, but it's going to have to take place. And then, you know, you almost have to monitor, you know, how rough that puppy is going to play or want the adult dog to play. You're going to have two responses. 
you're going to have a normally a response where the older dog puts up with it. I'm talking about mm-hmm. a puppy grabbing on the old dog's ears, biting its tail, biting its legs, just won't leave it alone. And or you're going to have that adult dog kind of set that puppy straight right off the bat. Here's the rules. Mm-hmm. They're going to do that anyway in a pack. The, the biggest thing there is you got to make sure that the adult, you know, knowing your own adult dog's personality, you know, that they don't harm that puppy too. I mean, where they hit them, they kind of hit them hard. Mm-hmm. A, a good medium there is the adult dog that kind of sets that puppy straight a little bit right away and goes, all right, here's the rules on, you know, what, what are my boundaries too? Mm-hmm. But I think most dogs, if you brought a, an adult dog in to get a puppy, they'd go, let's go home without one. so i've always been told that from the very decision that i made to add a second dog to be the hall monitor really immediately to make sure that there's you know there is going to be a confrontation and make sure that it doesn't get out of hand right um and my experience is i've been there i've caught it on the very first instance and I make sure that it doesn't get out of hand and it it's never gotten out of hand after that. But I anticipate there's some dogs that you do have to monitor, monitor their uh, relationship with that puppy more than just that one confrontation. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. And, and there's another thing to think about too, bringing, bringing a same sex puppy home, with mm-hmm. what you've already got, there's definitely going to be a different, you know, dynamic there. So you bring a female puppy home and you have a male dog in the house, they're most likely going to react a lot differently to that female puppy than they are a male puppy. That's mm-hmm. just, you know, and this is not every case, but it happens. Uh, or you bring a female puppy home with another female, you're going to have that that hierarchy thing, you know, in there as well. So that's something to think about. Uh, you know, that male is going to tolerate that female way more than a female is going to tolerate another female coming in. And then the same way with the male thing you could run into. But but knowing your dog's personality, if you have a if you have a docile, you know, kind of adult dog, or you have a passive adult dog, in a lot of cases, not all, that might play into how they react too. But Uh, Yeah, definitely, you know, bringing in the opposite sex, you know, is a little bit different. Females are a little less tolerant of a male puppy than a male would be tolerant of a female puppy. I mean, we're we're just that way, I guess. Sure. Is is there a uh, is there a combo that you have to be particularly uh, cautious about? I'm thinking two intact males, perhaps an intact male adult and an intact a uh, male puppy. Um, is there a combo that more often than not are, are going to be confrontational? I, I just think the personality of the adult has the mm-hmm. biggest uh, play in it. I mean, if you have a, a a real dominant male or a real dominant female, ones that you've already seen when they interact with other adult dogs that you go, oh, geez, you know, you can't bring them around adults because you know that they're going to be the ones with their hackles up, and they're yeah. looking for a fight, right? They're looking mm-hmm. to be dominant. You know, most likely those are the ones that their tolerance level is going to be extremely low. Uh, you know, and you're not doing this to scare people away from it, but you just got to be there and go when you introduce them. Is just you want to keep your eye on it and go, all right, the adult dog's got to know how to play. It's going to be hard to, 
keep that puppy from wanting to be the way mm-hmm. it is. Uh, like I said, that happy medium is that adult dog that sets that puppy straight, but you know, kind, you know, doesn't hurt him. You know, maybe uh, um, knocks him down or does something. Go like you can't. You know, this mm-hmm. is an area where I'm not going to let you pursue. <clears throat> and, and I've seen him where these puppies, you know, these adult dogs, they're so tolerant. You know, and that they're that puppy is being dragged around while he's holding on to the adult dog's ear, and you're going, "Geez, you know, do something here." You know, mm-hmm. to, to kind of get that puppy squared away. Some just won't. You got to go. Okay, let's just separate you right now. But then they get the puppies get past that stage too. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not an, a total lifetime thing, but they just got to get past that. So I'm assuming the structure that you want in the house is for you the adults or the the humans to be the alphas right and then the the veteran to be the next in line and then the puppy to be sort of the the, understand their place in the hierarchy is that accurate way of thinking about it yeah yeah you know hopefully that's the way it should be because you should have already established that with your adult dog who's running the show you know i mean that that's the case and then that adult dog is looking for you on how they're supposed to react too. Mm-hmm. you know, being that you're the dominant one. And let's say if you were in a pack and you had that pack animal that, I mean, he, he runs the show. I mean, if you see this in national geographic, I mean, if there's a, a lion and there's a kill there, I mean, as soon as the big dog walks up, everybody, mm-hmm. what do they do? They just, <laughs> they just like, okay, move out of the way. <laughs> right. and, and the same way being is you're, if you're that pack leader and, and you would see one of those subordinates picking on another one, mm-hmm. you, you know, th- those pack animals would set all of that stuff straight. So, right. I mean, we try to humanize this thing a little bit more than we should, but mm-hmm. they, they just relate, you know, to a little different level. Uh, on the same hand, if you had a, if you had a brother uh, or a big brother, big sister, you got picked on in the, in the schoolyard. Yeah. And they set that they set that person straight. It's a little bit the same, to be honest. Have you seen a puppy um, become the dominant dog in a hierarchy, or is that you know with a very timid veteran? They they can become that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that that's where they're figuring these things out. Really, mm-hmm. I mean if that puppy if that puppy continues to dominate, you know, and that adult dog doesn't do anything. I mean, that can continue on all the way through. Uh, and that's where that passive dog, uh, you know, he's, he's going to find himself on the, on the lower end of the totem pole as that puppy gets more to an adult stage. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be something there. Uh, that just has a lot to do with the personality of the dog that you, you know, currently have, though, too. So, right. But on the same hand, you know, as you, especially if you have male, male, female, female, you have to monitor that too, as far as, you know, who's going to be the dominant one and who's not, and how are you going to act? I don't care if you're dominant enough. Here's how you're going to act. Cause that's going to spill over into when they meet other dogs mm-hmm. and how they respond there too. So right. yeah. Yeah. It's a big part. It's a big part of it. Most people maybe don't think about that, that social interacting with a puppy right away when they get them home, they, they need to have that puppy socially go everywhere with them, meet lots of people. And I'm talking seven weeks immediately. Even when I get a puppy of my own, that's going to be my own. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that puppy, I'm, I make a daily trip to the hardware store, post office, uh, bank, wherever I can, where I have that puppy in my arms. Uh, you know, a seven-week-old puppy, you can walk in and everybody fawns over it, right? But, yeah, but right. really what's happening is they want to pet it and, and I go, do you want to hold it? You know, because I, I want that puppy then to start thinking that everybody is their, is their friend. When that puppy gets to be 12, 13 weeks old, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's getting bigger and people go, yeah, nice, but keep them away from me. Would you? <laughs> yeah, right, you right. So that, that social aspect is important. And then also uh, having them around socially acceptable dogs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you can take a puppy and, and introduce him to dogs that are going to be kicking his butt constantly. Well, mm-hmm. he's going to get kind of a defense type personality and, and he's going to hackle up later on whenever he meets a strange dog. So you have to be aware of what you're introducing that puppy to outside of your family as well. And, and, you know, go like, no, I I don't want him meeting your dog. Your dog Mm -hmm. is, your dog is going to be dominant and aggressive. And, and you're going to create an environment for my puppy that down the line, I mean, he's going to act way differently when he sees other dogs, he's going to be defensive. He might be a fear biter because of, you know, what I put him in. So mm-hmm. as, as uh, you know, the leader in the family there, you need to make sure that you're building that dog's confidence, uh, but then on the same hand, not letting him bully <laughs> everybody. Right. So there, there's a little bit more to this, I think, than what most people think about. The outcome of how your dog is going to act as an adult has a lot to do with, you know, all of those interactions that you present and you set up early. You're setting them up for success, not, you know, for the dog to fail. Yeah. In many ways, you know, the, the human instinct or thought process is, well, a second dog is probably easier because I've gone through this before and I've got another dog. But the reality is a second dog is probably more of a challenge than the first dog. Well, what happens, I think more than anything else, let's say, let's say the person waits till the dog gets 12 years old before mm. they replace it. Well, you did the majority of the training, that initial training, when they were a year old. Mm-hmm. So what do you remember 11 years later mm. on how you got there? And a lot of people go, geez, I, for, I forgot about a <laughs> lot of this stuff. And I get it because yeah. if you only do something once every 10, 12 years, I mean, we do it every day. But if you only mm-hmm. do anything once every 10, 12 years, you're going to go like, I, I forgot most of what. I did. And then remember now every dog's different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you may be trained a dominant dog where you could make a lot of mistakes and the dog just turned out in spite of what you did. Yeah. Now you have a passive one that maybe some of the discipline that your other dog got is way out of line for the one that you have now. So you know, it's not apples to apples in a lot of cases. And maybe you had a passive one, and the next one you get is more dominant. And you go, I never had this much trouble with my other one. <laughs> well, it's a different dog. Yeah. It's totally different. So is that going back to picking a puppy as well is I always tell people, you know, probably select one middle-of-the-road personality-wise. In a lot of cases, people go to look at puppies, a litter of puppies, and, you know, trying to figure out what, you know, what puppy is what, you know, you might see one laying over in the corner and, and you go, well, he's the docile one. Well, he was probably, maybe he's tired and he's the most dominant one in the litter. 
the breeders in most cases, you know, if they spend enough time with those puppies, they know who's who. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, that this is the most aggressive one right here. That's that's Buck. And then, uh, you know, over here that, you know, that's Jake. And he's, you know, he's he's probably the most passive one. So are you good enough to train the most aggressive dog? Aggressive meaning like a lot of energy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be harder for you to train the most passive one. And most people go, well, what do you mean it's – because what's going to happen maybe with the most passive one is that – if you make a mistake discipline-wise, it might have a greater impact on that passive one than it mm-hmm. ever would the most dominant. So middle of the road, say, I want one kind of middle of the road personality. Boom. Yeah. There you go. Well, one of the best bits of advice uh, I've gotten from uh, dog training friends over the years is to, you know, when, when I've made a decision on a litter to kind of explain to the breeder what I'm looking for and then take myself out of the picking equation that you know let the breeder they know they know me they know what i like to hunt how i like to hunt and then fit me into that litter for the puppy that is gonna best because like you say you only go see that litter once maybe twice they see that litter the first eight weeks of its life seven eight weeks of its life and they could say you know this is the pup that Bob should really add to his team because it fits these criteria. Is that pretty, is that what, how you would advise folks contacting you about litters? I I would say that that is the best, probably the best case scenario provided that, you know, provided that, like you say, the breeders spend a lot of time with their puppies. And, and I, you know, I went and I was looking for a, they really, you know, nice high quality golden retriever puppy. I mean, a field bred, puppy i went uh and i sought out a breeder down in uh, southeastern iowa this is after a lot of searching to find you know some bloodlines that i thought because this this person wanted a dog that was going to be uh have high energy but you know and a, a lot of hunt in it uh and i went and looked at their setup and they had a whole they had a whole garage with uh, a play area with all of these obstacles set up for these puppies and all of these things, this is not like the average deal. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. but these people were way into this breeding process and knew the value of stimulating those puppies when they were young. So, and, and everyone had a different colored collar on it. And I mean, so they really tracked who Mm -hmm. would do. So there I walk in and I go, all right, I can tell right now just by initially talking to the people over the phone, then getting there and seeing that set up and going, I mean, they know so much about every one of these puppies and, and they could tell me something about every one of them. I go, well, okay. You know, that, that, that's a solid situation there, but there's nothing like spending time with them and that hour you're going to spend with them. A lot of cases. And, and then also people will say, well, I want one with a big head. I want one with, you know, those little characteristics that you're looking for aesthetically don't have a lot to do with personality. Yeah. And when you overlook a little bit of aesthetics for that personality, that trainability part, you might be missing the boat. And, and realistically, when you, you know, you hand a puppy to somebody, 
most puppies look a lot alike at let's say seven, eight weeks of age. They, they just look alike. So how do you know who's going to have this, you know, characteristic versus the other? So uh, in your situation, you know, with short hairs, people, you know, or, or dogs have, have some color, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want one with a, you know, you know, with a, a little more of this color on a little bit more sometimes, right. you know, overlook some talent, you know, for, I, I need aesthetically this different looking dog. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I do, I do. People yeah. do, uh, you know, they want to love the look of their dog and they let that determine their selection. But I've never met somebody that, that hasn't fallen in love with whatever puppy they brought home. That's right. Uh, you know, and whether it's black, brown, yellow, hot ticked, you know, liver, you know, the reality is you're going to fall in love with it. Try to pick the most intellectually, um, the, the best intellectual profile that meets what you want to hunt. Agree a hundred percent. I mean, once that dog is home, I mean, that's yours. I mean, you're going to, you, you're going to love the puppy, not the look. And, uh, you know, and and if anybody said later on, that's the ugliest dog I've ever seen, those are fighting words. You know, because yeah. that, that's my dog. <laughs> yeah. That's my dog. You know, don't be talking bad about my dog. So, yeah, you're that that bond, that bond that you get is just, you know, it's it's, it's inseparable. So I've mentioned this a couple of times, and I know we've talked about it on video and different things, but just for the sake of this audience, um, I've mentioned intellectual um, related to a dog. Um, you know, their their mental capacity. How can you tip the scales in your favor, picking a puppy, knowing that they are smarter than your average uh, pup down the, down the corner. What, what helps you determine that thought process or that selection? I, I think it's bloodlines first. I mean, good, you know, we're talking working dogs here. So dogs that come out of, you know, extreme good working bloodlines, though they've been jet bred for generations to have the traits that we're looking for to begin with. And then it's a matter of, let, let's just say obedience, housebreaking, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of those things. I mean, that that's our job. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's our job to get that started. Most people don't even tap into a fraction of what their, their dogs are capable of doing and learning. And more importantly, they're, for the most part, tapping into it later than they should. You know, you know, you know, Tina's a teacher and I always say it, it's almost like taking a child and go like he's, you know, he's 12 years old now. He's going to be in the seventh grade and he basically knows his name. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, he's not in seventh grade. I mean, he he's not even in kindergarten yet because he hasn't learned all of the steps to get him to, to seventh grade. And these puppies at seven weeks of age they're ready to start learning. If, yeah. if they were in the wild, if this was a wild animal, they don't wait till they're a year old to start learning how to survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, mom's job as, as she goes from the weaning process to the actual how to hunt, how to find something, how to catch it, some of those things. I mean, those things are, are developed really way at a young, young age. And, and it's our job to, you know, to start, you know, putting those things in place immediately, you know, treat training, 
these dogs, think about these canines, they're predators, right? I mean, we like mm-hmm. to think of them as, you know, you know just the, you know, the, our, our lovable little animal, but they're predator by nature. So they are bred to work for their food, right? They have to. If they wouldn't work for their food, they're not going to survive. So treat training with a baby is that is working for that that food reward, right? They have to work for it. So you're you're actually breaking open that learning process. Now, I'm not a treat trainer as a dog gets, you know, that five, six, seven months of age, but breaking open that learning ability of of how do I get that reward? You get it by doing this task. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. learning. Uh, and and if all you do is go like, well, uh, your food bowl's over there. It's there every day. Just you know, you know, eat. And I always tell tell people when I'm maybe doing a seminar, don't be one of those people that, you know, goes, hey, look, honey, the dog's breathing. Give him a treat. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, they they want to work for something, and if you don't stimulate that, you know, you're not helping them as well. Well, one of the I remember one of the bits of advice you gave me early on picking puppies is really you're not picking a puppy, you're picking a piece of paper. You know, you're selecting based on that lineage, that bloodlines, and you're looking for those titles, master hunter, things like that on the um, the background of the parents and the grandparents. And I'm like, Tom, I'm, I'm really not that interested in doing the games and, and getting titles on my, my pup. I'm, I'm a 100% bird hunter, and I'm, I'm not really a a game player, I want to hunt. He's like, that's not the point, right? You, you told me yeah. it's not the point that what you want to do, it's those um, titles on the parents and the grandparents tell you that the, that that puppy has the genetic makeup to be what you want in the field. Right. You know, and you look at this, you really look at this with every breed. And so we'll we'll talk about like why does that retriever breed? Why is that puppy running around with something in its mouth constantly? He's got to be he's got to have something in his mouth. That's been bred in those dogs that that their job is picking things up, carrying them. Our job is to teach them to come back with them, right? Mm-hmm. Pointing dogs. Why why is why does that pointing dog puppy? He's pointing everything. It could be a fly on the on the uh, on the table. It could be. Right. I mean, he's he's he has to point. He doesn't know why he has to mm-hmm. do it. Well, it's been bred so strong for generations in them. They don't know why they're doing it, but it's there. So, if you're going to train a retriever, let's take a retriever. Do you want something that actually wants to have something in its mouth, and all you have to do is teach it to come back? Now it's more complicated than that. But wouldn't you want that to start with with a dog that goes, you know, I'm a little lukewarm about going and, and picking something up for you. Okay. You're starting off with, with the material that's going to actually work for you better. Or that pointing dog that wants to point to begin with, mm-hmm. all you have to do is put them in the environment and the situations to enhance it. Right. We see this, we see it all the time. Uh, not as much nowadays because I think people are way more uh, educated than they maybe were in the past on this is is somebody's going to invest you know a good amount of money into having a dog trained and our ability to get the best out of that dog has a lot to do 
with what it can give us on his end effort wise. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, most people, they, they go like, well, I'm, this is the dog that you're going to have to train. Okay. We're, you, you got to get the best out of him because we're not going to just go, well, he's not quite what we want. We're going to get another one. We understand that. And so we will do everything in our power to get as much out of that puppy as far as develop their instincts as far as we can. But in some cases, it's, it's like it, it could be way better than mm-hmm. they said. And it's not the puppy's fault. It's just the background that they come out of. Um, you know, it, why, why do you see sports figures that husband and wife are extreme athletes? In a lot of cases, those kids, if they grow up in that environment, they probably have it. Right. Uh, you know, so it, you know, it, it's pretty much the same. So and then intelligence wise too. I mean, these dogs have been bred for intelligence. So mm-hmm. housebreaking, obedience, control, all of those things, you know, can, if you tap into that, go smooth. They should. So I, I've taken us down a long road of uh, puppy talk. Let's yeah. let's go to the um, swing back to that second bird dog in training. So, you know, a lot of us in the springtime and summer, we keep our veteran dog tuned up, polished, um, and, and then you get a puppy. Do you train the puppy with the veteran dog like right now this time of year until mid-april in the north north country you can run your dogs on on woodcock migrating up north do you run the puppy with the veteran dogs um and can they learn from the veteran dog or is that setting you up for um problems most of the time those puppies are just going to be chasing that adult dog around you know just you know, having no idea what they're doing, bumping into him, grabbing him, you know, just they're oblivious, you know, in a lot of cases, those youngsters are, I would rather give them their own experiences where I set up, I set up something where they are going to succeed. They are going to be in contact with something. And that distraction of having, it's a distraction to have the older dog there actually for that puppy. And then once that, and we see this, once that puppy, and I say puppy, but once they get to the point where they've had enough individual experience and success on their own, and you have a good enough handle on them, control-wise, you can gradually bring them into an environment where there's an adult dog in there. I'm talking hunting now, mm-hmm. more than anything else. And that transition of them doing their own thing goes way faster. Mm. where they where they they say yeah it's great another dog's out here but i've had enough success on my own i'm not going to be chasing this adult dog around and 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 that's what you're going to see most likely more than anything else the the fact that yeah my old dog taught the young one how to hunt uh, yeah but on the same hand you're going to see that the old dog in a lot of cases is if you got a younger puppy you knock a bird down. The old dog's not going to let the puppy have the bird mm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he doesn't get the retrieve. And and now that, that that dog will end up hunting off of the other dog, what's the other dog doing? Right. So he's not doing his own thing. He's paying more attention to the other dog because it's looking for the opportunity to get the bird. Mm. And you'll see that th- that dog is like, where's the other dog? Where's the other dog? Well, that's because they're looking for them 
to show them where to go. So think of that as a wild thing, right? They're never mm-hmm. going to learn to self-hunt. Now, mom would teach those pups in the wild how to do it, but that's our job. Yeah, that's our job to to do that. So, uh, yes, you can do it. And we have people. Yeah, the old dog taught the young one how to hunt, but there's nothing like you know experience, you know, on their own. And that's our job to to put them in that environment. And that's where you mentioned the the biggest limiting factor for a second dog is time. Mm-hmm. That's that's where it comes into play the most because most people like I got done with work and you know I'm. I only have so much time to run the dogs and train the dogs. I'm going to do it together. Right. And that think about what, what takes the most time. So I would say what takes the most time is you got to get out in the field. You got to have bird contact. I mean, at some point Mm -hmm. you got to have those things, right? You've got to, okay, where, where can I go where I've got enough room to run the dog? And then where would I have some birds available and where do I have a pond for my retriever? And where do I have a place where I have a boat? I mean, mm-hmm. w- where are those things? Now, what about obedience? I mean, that can be done. That can be done in the house to start with. It can be done right. in the garage. It can be done in the basement. It can be done right out in the backyard. So a high percentage of the things that are going to matter in the long run are going to be obedience control related. And then you gotta you don't have to be out running the dog on birds every day, right? So you gotta go, right. okay, thinking about getting a puppy, what what do I need to do? Where are these places I need to have some a little wider open spaces that I can go periodically? And if you have a place where you can go and take them for a walk where they can just kind of run close to home, yeah, baseball field, uh soccer field, uh maybe a nature reserve, something like that. But you have to think about that, you know, no matter what, when you get a puppy is I, I need to find some of these spots. Right. I, I was, uh, Tina and I did a, a women's outdoor weekend in Phoenix. I trained a dog for a gentleman up in Tucson and, and he doesn't live in, in rural, you know, Arizona. And, uh, I said, well, you have to, and I trained his dog last summer and, and I says, you've got to find some places, you know, and I know his home environment. I seen it. It's, it's pretty tight quarters, you know, to have a dog and actually do some real dog mm-hmm. work. You got to go find some spots. You got to, you know, you got to be able to go find some areas where you can work them. And, and uh, I, when we uh, went to that uh, uh, outdoor women's weekend, I used that dog to do a seminar with, and he'd he'd found himself a baseball field. And it was actually <laughs> fenced in, and he had his own little spot to train. So. You have to have some of those things, but most people overlook the fact that, you know, a, a high percentage of the training is going to be done at home. And then you need some areas to go out and work. So the, I'm saying there's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't have the time to do it. It's, it's a five minute deal. Mm. You got to feed the dog every day anyways. Right. So right. five minutes right. of, of maybe doing some, uh, maybe some basic obedience whether it's in the house, downstairs, well, it gets dark too early. Well, it's not dark down the basement. Turn the lights on. It's not dark in the garage. Yeah. So, so those are the important things that are going to ultimately give you, you know, that, you know, that really nice dog down the line is to control you, you know, start asking when they're young. Well, it, it, I was absolutely guilty the first time I got a second dog of uh, believing that my older dog was going to teach the second dog how to hunt. 
And what it, it, what you've said already about um, you know that younger dog not being like sort of working off of the older dog to find birds, I've witnessed that. I was using this um, sport dog eighteen seventy five with the beeper collar, the the hawk screech, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah you know where this is going oh, exactly. Yeah, I, right? I, I do. So <laughs> yeah. so so my older dog and a younger dog were out hunting early on grouse hunting in September, early part of the season. The younger dog's probably in the six-month range at this point. The older dog would find a grouse or a woodcock, go on point, and the hawk screech would alert me, and that's 1875, to where the, where the um, this is pre-tech, you know, pre-GPS collars. Mm-hmm. And the older dog would be on point, and the hawk screech would go off, and before I could get there, you know, the, the young dog hears the hawk screech and says in its own mind, the, you know, old dog's got a bird. And zoom. now, thankfully, I was working with a really young dog that was solid pointing and honoring. So she would get close, um, put visual contact on my older dog and, and lock up and honor. So she wasn't blowing up the bird. But that did tell me okay, it's time to separate these two dogs so the young dog is actually finding her own birds. And that's really what you, that, that's one of the major pitfalls of if you're believing that the older dog is going to train in the younger dog, yeah, they're going to train them in, but it might not be what you want them to do. I think the biggest thing they'll get out of that is they'll just They'll just learn to run away, you know, get away from you because the old mm-hmm. dog is going to work away from you. Other mm-hmm. than that, you're right. I mean, I, I've seen the exact exact same thing that you've seen that, you know, that beeper goes off if it goes into beep mode. I mean, it's a beeline. It's a beeline over to where, why wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a signal that, hey, it's like somebody going, hey, there's a bird here, just like you said. Yeah. So I, 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 ju- I just like them to gain their own experience more than anything else. As a as a professional trainer, if and there's a lot of folks, every one of my dogs has gone off to a trainer for something, you know, mm-hmm. where it's just like I can get them 85% of the way there, but I just need a little help with something. And I never know what it's going to be because each pup has been a little different with what I've needed help with. At what age? Because I think we all fall into the pitfall of, you know, opener is coming up October, you know, 15th. And it's, I look at the calendar and I got a, I got a month and that there, that's when they pick up the phone. Uh, And that's, I, I would estimate that's the wrong thing to do. The, The right thing to do is knowing the age of your pup. When's the right age to send a pup off to a pro trainer like you to, sort of put the polish on before hunting season? Well, I think a lot of that depends on if you're polishing something or if you're in rehab mode. Okay. Uh, You know, I mean, so we deal primarily with, you know, our program has been set up for many, many years that let's just say we, we get them in when they're five months old. So we have contact with most of these dogs prior. We don't really get a lot of I've got a major issue with a dog we've never seen before Mm -hmm. because what happens is with that, we don't really have a lot of history. Although, I mean, we'll, we'll have people maybe come in for some lessons, but we need to dig if say, well, here's what's happening. 
99% of the time we go like, well, here's, here's a, a lot of scenarios that probably got to this point. This is maybe why this is happening. So if, if it was a lesson situation first to see, we go, I'd like to see you do this, 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 and this with the dog while I'm watching. Because hmm. a lot of times, you know, it, it's like lifting up the hood of a vehicle and going like, well, there's like something's wrong with the vehicle. Okay, well, you got to sort through and go like, well, it could be one of several things. So you got to look and say, well, this is happening as a result of what happened here. And a lot of cases, it's not like just putting a new nut or bolt in there. I mean, you've got a habit that we're dealing with potentially uh, hmm. more than anything else versus if you say somebody comes in, well, uh, I'm coming into hunting season and, and I only shot two birds for my dog last year and it was his first year. Well, he needs a lot of bird contact. I mean, so that's kind of an easy one. If it's an obedience or control related thing, we would have to know what, what you've already started and what led up to where you were at. And then we can go, okay, here's the issue. But then how long is it going to take the dog to get in the right habit? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It, a habit mm -hmm. isn't started and, and done in a day. In a lot of cases, it's not done in a week. You can get something started, but then you have to hand it back over and go, you have to keep doing this on a daily basis to get this now to the point where it is a habit. If it's a bad habit you're trying to take out and then put in another good habit, a lot of times that bad habit, depending on how long it was ingrained, it's just it's like cutting dandelions off, right? Mm -hmm. You you might mow them off, and the lawn looked good for a day. <laughs> it's wanting <laughs> to grow back, back up. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So so that that's a different situation. How long maybe a bad habit is is gone on, and mm -hmm. then what they're going to take to get over it? Because it it'll take a lot of effort to break that. It's no different than what bad habits we might have. I mean, right. you know, if some, somebody came to your job place and said, hey, you've been doing this wrong all your life. You go, oh, wait a minute here. You know, right. I'm, I'm doing all right. And they got, I've got to change what you're doing. That bad habit, you know, you, you're going to have to really work to get it out of there. So uh, nowadays, with to be honest with you, if it's a control issue, we don't see the massive control issues that we used to see. 25 30 years ago because of the equipment that's out there now mm. so and, and i'm talking primarily you mentioned sport dog at the beginning remote the remote collar training you know pr provided that you take all the right steps and do everything the way you should do teach all of the control first and then just get into a reinforcement part with it we don't see these dogs that they're they're just uncontrollable back in the day when we didn't have the right equipment well, the dog's not listening. He's out there 200 yards. I got to see if I can go catch him. Mm. You know, and then discipline would come if you caught him. Well, that was the wrong way because the dog yeah. goes, well, if, if, if you catch up to me, I'm going to get discipline. So I want to stay further away from you. So now with the control that we have, these dogs understand that I'm, I always have the ability to be controlled and if I get a correction for not coming back when called, which you've, you know, gone through and extensively mm -hmm. in training, when I come back to the guy, he loves me up. Mm -hmm. So I, I really, my problem is further out there. The dog is thinking, if I stay within this range here, I'm good. So 
the the massive control problems aren't what they used to be and they're that's the number one problem with most of these dogs especially upland dogs is those are things that we can rein in pretty quick especially with an adult dog because most people go you know if they haven't gone that route they go well i've got control issues uh okay what he he won't come when called does he know it well yeah he knows it the fact that he already knows it mean he was taught then we can just reinforce okay. and reinforcing is the easy part uh, of the process the teaching process takes longer yeah so a long story i made a, a long story out of that but uh evaluating what your dog needs and what it'll take to get him you know turning that corner but ultimately some of those things then revert back to the owner going well we've got this set in motion right now you have to keep this going and if somebody says, well, i don't have the time to do it then the dog you then leave the dog long enough so he can actually get through this mm-hmm. we've yeah. talked mainly i guess I, I didn't vocalize it but under the assumption that if you own a lab you're the second dog you're gonna get is a lab or if you own a short air you're gonna get a short air so you kind of know the rules of the game it becomes far more complex if your second dog is a different style than your veteran dog it, it, right if you own a lab and decide to get a pointer those are two different approaches it's a different they? game yeah, yeah it's a different game yeah absolutely you know bird contact's a different game yeah that that retriever we you train a retrieving dog so that people would understand this a retriever or a flushing dog let's say upland because we're talking upland here this mm-hmm. is pheasants forever and quail forever their job is to put the bird in the air yep you know yeah yeah you have pointing labs and stuff like that but the, a flusher's job is to put it in the air so the reason they flush is they think they they're going to catch they think they can catch it so when we start off we would have birds on the ground that they catch so they they smell and and their reward is i'm gonna i smell something i'm hunting i'm gonna run in i can catch that thing that's why they continue to want to go in and flush it because that success of catching we're a pointing dog you never want them to catch so you have to change your mentality of i don't ever want to get this especially a young dog in a position where he accidentally even catches one because mm-hmm. then his mindset is well why would i point this thing if i can go catch it the ultimate goal is to get it in my mouth at some point right 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 so you have to change your whole you know thinking method uh retrievers and uh, flushers we teach them to sit or hup pointers we teach them to stand or wool mm-hmm. so i mean the guy i had this lab now i got my pointer i've, I've really worked him hard on sit uh well now when we go to steady them on point we're doing a little backward pressure on a check cord the dog starts sitting i mean could you still shoot a bird if your pointer sat but it's not <laughs> it's, it's not what you're looking for right, right. <laughs> so there is there is a big difference yeah um and you and your retrieving breeds uh primarily aren't going to range like your pointing breeds are you know their job is to to flush something close a pointer's job depending on your terrain and what you're hunting is to get out there, cover a lot of ground, as long mm-hmm. as they'll be steady and hold point. You know, you've seen that when you've hunted quail in Arizona. Mm-hmm. The range that is expected there is going to be a little different than maybe if you're hunting pheasants in South Dakota right. on a pointer. Yeah. And far different than rough grouse in the Northwoods, right? Same deal. Right? 
right? Yeah, yeah. So, and and that goes to the point, if you do decide to switch up, say you own a lab and you want to get a pointer or vice versa, the training process really, you do need to make a very deliberate decision that you're going to train them separately. Because, you know, there there are these cases where, you know, the, the, the pointing dog will go out and point the bird and then the you know, the person will release the cocker or the lab to flush the bird. But to get two dogs to that level takes years, does it? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it does. And, and oh, then you got to have, it, it takes years and it takes exceptional dogs. Not every dog, not every pair is going to get to that level, are they? No. And if you're ever in a position where you see that, you have to appreciate the fact that there's a tremendous amount of training that went into that to get it done. I don't know if people would even appreciate what what it took to get to that level of training on both mm-hmm. breeds, the pointing mm-hmm. breed and the flushing breed. And yeah, it the that's why people never see it very often. It just yeah. it just takes it just takes a lot. It just takes a lot of work. So uh, all of it can be done. But then when you're hunting, if the biggest thing there, when you're trying to do something intricate like that with dogs, you can't let it all go by the wayside when you hunt. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, this this pointing dog goes, well, wait a minute. You know, you're going to let this flusher go in and flush it. I'm going to flush it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, your job is to point it. And you you got to have that retriever to the point where when he he's got to honor that pointer while he's pointing sit there patiently and wait to go in and flush i mean i think the the biggest pressure is on that pointing dog more than Mm. anything else i mean he's he's got to watch that other dog go in and put a bird up that ultimately is his and not break i mean Mm -hmm. i'm talking now like steady to wing shot and retrieve Mm -hmm. and let that other dog retrieve as well so that you know you see that maybe more in a plantation kind of a thing sure you know what i mean where um you know that's their game you you probably wouldn't see that in a grouse woods you know to speak of or some other things but tell you what if you see it i mean stand back and watch it because that's quite a show <laughs> it is it's incredible when you get to yep. two dogs at that level then yep. I've, I've witnessed um you know the a pointer that works with a falcon you know oh, that's yeah. a have you seen that that's a completely <laughs> different level yeah and you go like and and he and he's he's got to he's got to be intense on birds but leave that bird alone yeah yeah it yeah that's that i mean like i say i mean the things that the things that these animals are capable of doing put in the right environment with the right people it's it's incredible it yeah. really is and remember before shotguns that's the way people hunted mm-hmm. right i mean yeah, right. you, you had a spear or you had a falcon or something that that that's how you would bird hunt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really something to see. Anything that uh, related to this, adding a second bird dog that I've missed? Any um, any key bits of advice? I think the I I think that you hit on a lot of things because you know you and I have kind of chatted in the past about these things. It I, the first and foremost. I always tell people, just don't go look at a litter of puppies till you've 
validated that you've got great bloodlines to begin with. I mean, you're starting on a, a whole new journey again, and you you can make it as easy on yourself or as hard as yourself as you want. And if if you don't know how to read a pedigree and what you're looking for, uh, you know, professional trainers would do it all of the time. And and letters in front of a pedigree would be some of them you would see letters in front of parents' names would be an FC, which is a field champion. AFC is an amateur field champion. Then you could go like national amateur field champion, uh, master hunter, senior hunter. Um, those are things that if you you're, you just need to know what's on a pedigree before. Because if you go look at a puppy, a litter of puppies, and as soon as you put one in your arms, you're done. You're walking out with a puppy. And mm. that's the worst case scenario, I, I say. So good bloodlines. I mean, that's that's the main thing. That And then... And then have that game plan down, you know, before you get that puppy home. What are we going to do? You know, when's the training going to start? You know, and then if you have a family situation, make sure everybody's on the same page on -hmm. something like that. And and the more people you have on page uh, keeps everything consistent for them as well. So and this is a family. This has become more of a family endeavor than it ever has before. Yeah, maybe not everybody in the family might hunt, but... The, the overall the overall enjoyment of that dog is going to be based on on what structure that puppy has when you get him home or that second dog when you have him get home. So no, I you hey you you're, you do a good job of doing this and knowing what what to ask. You've been there. It always helps when you you're working with somebody who's been there, done that. Well, yeah. I've also made all the mistakes before too, and continue. We to all make. have. <laughs> I have a I have a young puppy at home now, Gitchy. Uh, and I, I went down the road of wanting to get two puppies because I had two names. I had, yeah. I wanted, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I had this name picked out, Gitchy Gumi, you know, Lake Superior. Uh, it's like, yeah. I, Meredith, I want, I want two. I want Gitchy and Gumi. And <laughs> thankfully Meredith talked me out of it before you had to. <laughs> oh, well, good. well good. she probably saw the amount of work that was going to take yeah. place in the house. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but we do have, you know, we have uh, three pups at home right now. Thirteen-year-old Trammel, who is, uh, you know, is the old lady, old grandma in the house. He's like, get off my lawn, you know, yep. with the young, yep. with the young yep. puppy. There hasn't <laughs> been any any uh, dangerous confrontations, but they just they don't play together, right? No. Nope. And then uh, then we got Eski, the six-month-old, that, or I'm sorry, the six-year-old and the six-month-old Gitchy, and they're the best of buds. Yep. Which yep. is fun and it's terrific, but I can also see it's creating some pitfalls for me when I go out in the field and try to train them together because I lose a bit of control over Gitchy because she is um, using Eski, my six-year-old, as the point of reference, as the alpha. So yep. everything you've talked about where, okay, I've got to leave Esky in the truck. I know I got to do it, Tom. So <laughs> but but yep. it's, you're you're right on because I need to. I have that bond with her because I've had her as a puppy. But the bond is is strengthening and growing stronger with Esky than yep. it is with me, mm-hmm. and that's going to present me problems long term if I don't correct it sooner. So yeah, it I, just takes that little extra effort. To go like I'm leaving one, but I need to exercise the the older one. It just takes a little extra effort. But you know the good part is 
by the time they get to be like a year, you know, things really, you know, you can start to loosen up the reins on some stuff too. So which is good. Yeah. And you're, and I know that's a sacrifice you make now because there is a point in time down the road when you can hunt them together. Oh yeah. And it's not when they're young because they're like, like we talked about with the, the beeper collar, <laughs> you know, right. when they're yep. young, the yep. younger dog's going to mm-hmm. gravitate towards that older dog in the, and yeah, run the risk of the older dog finding the birds and the young, younger dog playing off of that. But when you get to that point where maybe it's, um, you know, an eight year old and a two year old or, a, you know, an eight and a three and uh, speaking from a pointer's perspective, and you can run two dogs together, and when they both lock up on two different birds in a different direction, and you can go flush one, shoot it, and then go to the second dog, flush one, shoot it, that is... Life's good. Life's right? good, isn't it? That is the cherry <laughs> on top of a Sunday of owning, oh, yeah. two, of owning two dogs. Yeah. And so yeah. there's some sacrifices you make in the short term to get to that cherry, because uh, it doesn't happen a whole lot, but when it does happen, it's one of those crowning achievements of your bird hunting experience. And, and yeah, it's something never, to gravitate towards. Never forget. I mean, you just never forget. It's like hitting the Grand Slam, walk-off Grand, grand Slam yeah. to win the game. It just yep. is. Yeah. yeah. If folks want to uh, connect with you or, or learn about Oak Ridge Kennels, um, and maybe you're, you, you've got a fabulous you know, gun and bird introduction program for young dogs, um, how do they learn more? If they got questions, can they contact you directly? Yeah, sure. Just, I mean, uh, Dawkins Oak Ridge Kennels, uh, their Facebook page, Dawkins Oak Ridge Kennels, uh, Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're more than happy to, you know, big part of this is just educating our customers too on, on when things need to be done, how they should get started. And, and I know you and Billy talk about that bird and gun introduction program that it, it's the foundation for a hunting dog at five mm-hmm. months old. We start them off with that and I'm not doing an infomercial here, but it, it's kind of one of those things that think about getting started with something when they're young. I mean, and you'll have good results down the line. Well, the other thing, and I was guilty of this for a long time too, I associate the name Dokken with Labradors and Retrievers. Um, But, you know, you... In particular, Mike at your facility, you know, he did does a ton of pointing dog training. He Mm -hmm. was the presenter on the bird dog stage at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. All all breeds, all specialties are are available for training at uh, at your facility, right? Yeah, we do we do everything. The Midwest is because of probably we have you know access to all the waterfall hunting pheasants and so on. there's there's just a high contingency of, of retrieving breeds in the Midwest. If we went down to Mississippi, it would probably be almost all pointing dogs. But we mm-hmm. train we train everything. I mean it, you know, uh, every all the spaniels, retrievers, the pointers. You know, uh, ob- I mean, obedience dogs, a terrier. If somebody has a terrier that needs obedience training or whatever, um, you know, 
we're we're dog trainers, yeah. not specific breed trainers. And and which really makes it nice is you know everybody who trains at our facility is is just well rounded. You just I think you become a way better dog trainer. You know, experiencing every breed that's out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, not only a better trainer, but there's so much joy to watch the different styles of all the different mm-hmm. breeds. You know, from Vichlas to yep. Weimariners to to Griffs to Springers to Cockers. You know, they're just yep. all super cool. You bet. Uh, Tom, thank you so much uh, for being a, a part of this podcast and sharing all your expertise with us. It's always fun. Always enjoy it, Bob. Uh, folks, I'm going to point you again to uh, birddogsforhabitat.org as we record this particular podcast. The Golden Retriever has uh, taken the top spot on the bird dog breed popularity contest um so it's early on the golden occupies the leaderboard number one spot at the moment uh i want to send a big thank you and shout out to uh, sport dog brand for being a a sponsor of this particular episode and bird dogs for habitat.org perina pro plan project upland rufflin kennels and NAVDA, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Thank you very much for supporting birddogsforhabitat.org. And thanks to you, the On the Wing listener. Appreciate you tuning in and escaping all the COVID discussion with a little bird dog talk. And if you're not a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever yet, you can do so by checking out birddogsforhabitat.org. You can become a member and your votes can go towards your favorite breed of bird dog. All right. I am Bob St. Pierre signing off and saying, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>